This is Daniel Steinberg, and you are listening to The Magid Method, a new podcast about trushas. Today we interview Rabbi Ari Newman, Assistant Rabbi at Torah Met in Columbus, Ohio. Enjoy. I wanted to unpack your Rosh Hashanah sermon because, you know, I was sitting there in the audience live while you were delivering it. And from my perspective, there were so many parts of it that were so effective. And I just, I wanted to understand your process in terms of went into the went into the preparation, what went into the delivery, how you felt afterwards, any feedback you received from congregants about it. Right. Got it. Okay. I have to be honest. I had to go out for a few minutes right before you got up to speak. And I missed your opening, which is such an integral part of a drusha that, you know, the first impression. So how did you start? And how much weight do you usually put into how you open? Um, I try to I try to think a lot about openings. I find that if you if you start with any hackneyed uh, regular canned line like in this week's parsha, you're basically asking people to go to sleep. And <laughs> so I feel very strongly that you want to try to lead with something that creates a little bit of want people to to have a little bit of a question where is this going i want people to, to have that that thought but i also don't want to bury the lead I, I want people to have a sense of where we're going but i want there to be a little bit of mystery if possible in where we're going it happens to be in this dress uh, i did not do one of the things that i learned from one of my teachers is jj Schechter, and he always talked about an address you also you want to make the h which is you have a line here and you have a line on the end, and then you have that line in between that connects them. But you really you draw the first line, then you draw the second line, and then you draw the third line in between to connect the point A and point B. And so there's a little bit of of stress there when you have those two standing lines before you connect everything that that you want to try and create that that pressure. So sometimes I'll open with a, a story or a question, and I'll leave people hanging there. In this case, actually, the drasha had more of a linear uh, framework. Uh, this is actually, this style of drasha for me is where there's a central, almost kind of like when we have kinos or slichos and there's a, a line that we constantly come back to. Yeah. So for me, there was a line that I opened with and then I manipulated over the course of the entire drasha. The line is actually a line from a poem. It's a spoken word poem from Sarah Kay. And the line goes, because there's nothing more beautiful than the way the ocean refuses to stop kissing the shoreline, no matter how many times it's sent away. And I repeated that line twice to open up because there's nothing more beautiful than the way the ocean refuses to stop kissing the shoreline, no matter how many times it's sent away. And then I had a vignette of how Rosh Hashanah, for me personally, and the ocean were had a connection for a long we're gonna time. get there yeah we're yeah. gonna get there it was very effective because i missed that opening yet i i still know exactly what you were talking about and that line stuck in my mind and it still does it's still resonating so it was very effective okay so so i liken the high holiday drusha season to lahavdil the super bowl you know it comes once a year the stakes are really high right. everyone's watching ads are really expensive and they have to count so what goes into your decision about what to talk about on Rosh Hashanah, Shabbat Shuvah, Yom Kippur? What, um, you know, walk me through that process, your thought process of what Tehillah needs to hear. Yeah. So um, 
my instinct tends to be doesn't always work out this way, but it tends to be focused benadum lechaveru. Um, in particular, I I find that that we, I think that mm-hmm. people can grow a lot in their interpersonal relationships, and I also find that because you have a broader audience, often particularly on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I'm not sure about Shabbat Shukla, but particularly on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that having an idea or a message that should be something that everybody can take away from, Beidan Lachavero is an area that I find lands better with the entirety of the congregation who shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, I've mentioned to you in the past that I struggle as a rabbi with the balance between how much do I love, support, and embrace people, and how much do I try to push people. And so I would say that during the year, I probably err on the side of love and embrace. And during the high holiday season, I am more willing to push a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to try to move people to do something that they don't necessarily want to do, um, or that they're not um, normally reminded that they really should be doing um, at this period of time but it doesn't always work out that way really again uh, i've also mentioned to you that that sometimes for me uh, depending on what the year brings and my preparation brings if a particular source or a particular idea is one that i just come back to a number of times so i will run with that mm-hmm. i'm 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 often the way that i consume everything is constantly with a back in the back of my mind. I'm always thinking about: Is there a place for this in a drasha at some point? And whenever I hear or find something, and and as someone who's a planner, you kind of have yeah. to do this. Right. So I will constantly flag things that I'll come back to, and maybe they're a seed that can sprout into something beautiful, but they need the proper proper nurturing. And so if I have enough of the same idea coming together all of a sudden that might push me to talk about something even if it doesn't fit the framework that i started with so i don't know that it's always my goal is to speak about this thing Mm -hmm. and then i speak about that thing sometimes it is if there's something particular that i want to talk about but other times it's um, different experiences that lead me down a certain path and ultimately brings me to that decision if that makes sense got it yeah for sure for sure. I was thinking about, you know, my, my past life being a comedian and, you know, there's always a comedian is always looking out for things funny to file away to, you know, for the next, you know, fodder for the next joke. So yeah. Bob Dill, yeah. It's like everything is, everything's material, you know, everything is grist for the mill. Yeah, so, you never know. I find again. So stylistically, one of the things that I find very much is that I greatly, greatly prefer true stories that are not so surprising that are not so unbelievable, that are not so, right, these 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 swerving stories with the, that boy was me. Once in a while, I will I will use them. But yeah. I'm much bigger a fan of the real life, just recognizing something that is happening in front of everybody, but most people just walk right past it. And I can kind of zoom in on it and say, oh, well, that was a powerful moment. I would yeah. love to capture that and use that and bottle it um, and find a place for it. So that's, I greatly prefer those types of things. 
observational type of stuff. Yes. Yeah, got it. Okay, so my takeaway from your sermon was two things. That no matter how many times we fail, mess up, God keeps on coming back to us like the waves on the shore. Yeah. And B, that we need to be godlike in our interactions with others and come back to them when they mess up and fail us. Did I get that right? Is that, that what is you want? 100%. That is exactly. Okay. If I had to give a, a two-line summary, I don't think I could have said it better. Okay, perfect. So so that's that was what I encapsulated. So the part that I walked in on was you're reminiscing about the waves and the shoreline and the muscle, the parable you gave. It was very vivid imagery. And so I was wondering if you could just repeat it for the sake of the people who weren't there so they understand what we're talking about. I'm sure. So uh, my family in 2004 started going back to, started going to Old Orchard Beach, Maine. And we went to basically help save a shul that had come under some pressure to go from an orthodox shul to reform shul. And the people who had been running the shul for many, many years didn't have really the money or the ability to lead high holiday services. And we had somehow come across this shul on our camping trips as a family in Maine. And when we found out that the shul was in trouble, we committed to going out and basically leading the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur davening for the shul. And it started for one year and then we did it for many, many years. And we'd go up as a family and uh, it was us and one other family um, that would do the whole thing together. And they would always put us up at this little inn, this quaint inn right next to the shul on the beach. Right on, on the on the night of Rosh Hashanah, the first night after our meal, every year I would walk out by myself. Again, I was 17 when this first started. Yeah. And I would look out on the beach and the beach was totally empty and it's Maine. So the light pollution is very faint. So you can see incredible amount of stars and the vastness and endlessness of the ocean is just black. And wow. you have crashing waves on the beach line. And it's very, you feel very small. You feel um, the power of the world. And this line of Sarah Kay's poem brought me back to that moment on Rosh Hashanah, where I had this this memory of the ocean and that the, the waves constantly crashing into the shoreline. And again, it's much more violent in real life, but the way that she takes that violence and makes it so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, for me, was such kind of was a just paradigm shifting perspective on that that memory, and so it was very natural for me to talk about this on Rosh Hashanah. That's great. That's awesome. Now, everyone's got their own style of speaking that works for them. My preference is to speak without notes. Not always as eloquent as I'd like to be. Sometimes I repeat myself or don't use the most efficient or economical words, or I leave things out. But my sentiment is that for the most part people are only going to remember how you made them feel. You know, that line of, I forget who said it, Maya Angelou, I think, that, you know, they're not going to remember what you said, but they're going to remember how you made them feel, the experience. And I want that connection between audience and speaker to be as, as strong as possible. And my feeling is that notes distract from me being fully present with them and them with me. So all that being said, from my perspective, and I don't know if everyone was hypersensitive to this as I am, but in the beginning, you took some very long pauses to look at your notes to assess what you're going to say for the next couple minutes at a time. Uh, and then and then as the drusha proceeded, you went off your notes, obviously, for the personal part. But 
so so give me a little bit of insight into your your thought process about that about when to use yeah so so that's actually it's actually a great 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 question i remember when I was in Smicha, so we had to homiletics with uh, uh, Rabbi Lukstein from KJ. And mm-hmm. Rabbi Lukstein was a, right, he would just read his speeches, basically. His speeches were completely scripted. And I hated that, personally. That For me, that was, like, I, why do I need you, right? Just give me your, give me your address. You know, yeah. um, and that's fine. On the flip side, I have gone completely without notes and sometimes i found that i lose kind of the the tightness of my idea when i don't have the grounding mm-hmm. now i will say that one of the things that i'm very comfortable with is sometimes a dresser comes out slightly differently than i have it written down uh, that not this particular dresser but there have been times where something that i thought was important in the in the process of making my point when i was writing it when i was saying it it just it didn't naturally happen in my head and often i find that to be a a, a mental edit that i didn't make when i was writing it doing it to myself but when i'm doing it now publicly that that was i'll go back and i'll often take that piece that i had just left out and i'll remove it from the, mm-hmm. the final version of my drasha, unless I feel like the drasha didn't land because I missed it. But yeah. normally if my brain is doing that, that means that I had added an extra step that was not necessary mm-hmm. in the, the natural progression of the drasha. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I'll say is, is that how I, I should have enough time to really perfect the drasha in a way that I felt that I could go without any notes but I think for me, the way that I, the amount of time that I put into a drasha is I spend a lot of time crafting it. And then I do spend time actually thinking and presenting it in my head. And maybe when I'm walking or doing something like that, how it's going to come out. But I don't, I don't spend hours. I don't spend even, I would say even a half hour of actually practicing the presentation only because I don't have the time for it. If I had endless time, I think that, and the truth is, is that there are times where there are shirim or, or drashot that are repeats that I've done in the past and they're coming back now. And I find that those, I don't need notes because mm-hmm. I already spent that time and mental energy and already presented it that I can often, well, almost, it's not like playing play on a, on a videotape, but it's, there's a certain amount of it that is already so ingrained in terms of how the rush is going to go that I can do it completely without notes and adjust it on the fly if I need to. I think it's just a comfort level with the material and making sure yeah. that um, I am not too meandering. I think that the notes help me stay on point to the best of my ability. And yeah, obviously when it comes to certain parts where you're sharing the personal stuff it's easier to completely go off notes and you'll see me often my my opening and my closing often are more um, the words are more tailored i'm trying to bring back some of the elements that if i don't have those notes to remind me to mention the fact that i had just gone through right the the pinkus the piece from a pinkus as well as the section from Echa that in my closing note, I might not circle back to them. So I often will write that part out in mm-hmm. order to try to 
remind myself to re return to all of the points on the journey in the end. And often, again, my my opening is very structured. And so I want to make sure that I, I lay the groundwork properly. So I do sometimes pause for an extra half a half a second longer than I think most people do. My wife mm -hmm. makes fun of me for it. It's uh, <laughs> one of the things that <laughs> she's like, all right, what were you doing up there? <laughs> right, right, right. We'll just um, I'll take our time while you... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> okay, so let's get to my favorite part of your Joshua, where I think you nailed it. From, from my side of the fence, it was just so effective at getting the whole room locked into you as a speaker. And you spoke from the heart lovingly, but with an important message that we all, including myself, needed to hear. And I'm going to let you relate it. And I'll interrupt you with my point of view as a listener and, you know, the parts that I thought worked really well, if that's okay. Sure. I assume you're talking about the transition from the moment. Exactly. Yeah. The personal story. And yeah, go, go ahead. Take it from where you feel is appropriate. And, sure. um, and I'll, I'll interrupt, you know, with a couple points that, that I thought you know, just, just really wanted to bring to light some of the things I thought you did really well. Right. Maybe some were subconscious. So, so first thing I, I, I tried to mentally prepare everybody. Uh, the transition line that I think I used something along these lines was, I think I've been easy on you this po to this point. Right. Uh, right. Most right. of what I spoke great. about, what most of what I spoke about so far is between us and God. And the truth is, is that you can fake that as much as you want. Your relationship with God is between you and God, obviously. And I can speak all day here and you can do whatever you want and no one will know the difference. But the truth is, is that, that the next part is going to be a little bit harder. And this part is how we as human beings need to take this lesson and translate it into the relationships, the relationships that we have with other people in our lives. And that we need to, in the same way that we have people that we love and adore, there are also people that over the course of life, one reason or another, there is tremendous distance and dysfunction with those people. And we need to be the ocean that comes back to their shoreline again and again and again, showing that love. And then I shared a story from my mom and... I explained that when, how my wife and I just celebrated our 12th anniversary, I called it my bat mitzvah anniversary. And this summer, my mother decided that despite the fact that for 12 years, she and my mother-in-law really never got past their fighting at the creation of my wedding, at the all the planning of my wedding, there was a lot of... This is how it should be done. This is how it should be done. This is how we should pay for it. That's how we should pay for it. There's just a lot of animosity created between my mom and my mother-in-law in, -law in mm -hmm. that process that they just would not talk. They, they couldn't talk to each other for a very long time. My mom decided to give a call to my mother-in-law and to apologize for some of the things that she did wrong at uh, the planning of my wedding and said to my mother-in-law that it was something that we needed to, to, turn, to turn, turn, the, turn the page, turn the leaf, yeah. start over again. And I said how inspired I was by my mom's bravery to be willing to make that first step and how inspired I was by watching her example. And I said that from my perch as a rabbi, I unfortunately witness so much dysfunction, so many families who have, whether it's mother-in-laws, whether it's 
brothers and sisters, parents and children, that uncle that nobody talks to. There's There seems to be so much family issues that have been unresolved. And uh, I said a little bit jokingly, right? Obviously, it's their fault, right? Obviously, it's the other people's fault because that's how we always feel. We always feel right. like they wronged me. And so I don't want to make the first step. I don't want to be the one to, why, don't, why should I do it? which right. is extremely petty, but very naturally human, unfortunately, very human reaction. And so I said, I know that. And maybe it's not even going to work. Maybe maybe your all of your attempts are going to fall on empty ears and no one's going to respond. And it's going to be like, why did I even put myself out there? Mm-hmm. And my return back to the wave and how Hashem, no matter what we do, comes back and crashes into the shoreline and gives us that little kiss on the kepi and says, I'm always here. And I come back. And so I felt very strongly that it's something that we need to try to live by, that it's not just lip service, but it's it's something that we need to try to make amends with those people in our lives who we have distance from. Uh, and it's hard. It's really hard. But I feel like if not on Rosh Hashanah to think about this, and to try to maybe, if I can move one, two, three people, sure. to try to move forward in, in a challenging relationship they have with somebody in their family or in the Kalyasrael, I think that that is worth every second of the preparation yeah. and the delivery of the sermon. Like that's yeah, for me, that would be the greatest, the greatest thing. Right, that you transform people's lives. Um, okay, so there were a few things that you did want to point out. Um, and again, maybe some of this was subconscious. Some of it was conscious, it sounds like. But you you said that you, how you transition people, you said, I've been really easy on you until now. I remember thinking, wow, that, that created some tension. You know, it got the feeling like, what's he going to lay on us right now? You know, am I going to be able to handle it? And I thought that was really effective because it, you know, it, it created that tension and, and got people invested in what you were about to say. Another thing before you shared that personal family story, you said, I asked my mother, or I forget, it was my mother, my mother-in-law, permission to share this. And That's my mom, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, your, your mom or your mother-in-law? Yeah, my mom. My mom. Your mom, right. And to my ears, that, that created a real sense that we're about to be let in on something classified, you know, that you're about to disclose something that we wouldn't be able to hear anywhere else. And it created a certain sense of, I don't know about drama, maybe that that's too much of a word, but it, or something that you're about to reveal something. So it really, you know, I got people hooked into you. At what point- And I don't even think the revelation was that. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't think that you thought it was, but I think that from my perspective, it seemed like everybody in the room was glued to you. And again, I'm kind of hypersensitive to this type of stuff, just as as having my background in entertainment and audience engagement, I felt, could feel that palpable feeling that, you know, it was the breath- people's breath got shorter. People were, you know, people were looking at you there. No one was nodding off. It was, you were, you know, you had, you had people at, you know, at every word. Uh, but you, sometimes it's hard to tell when you're in the moment from up there, but to, you know, from, again, from my perspective, I felt it. Uh, what point, what point did you decide to include that story? Was it to enhance the drasha or did you feel it was a cornerstone of the drasha? Like where did, had, at what point did that come in? Um, so that's a great question, actually. Uh... The drusha, it was actually, uh, I felt that the drusha was incomplete. It was not part of the drusha first. At first, the drusha was just the first part. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it. I didn't feel like it did much. I thought that it was important. It's an important reminder 
that and again i think there's something powerful to tell people who only come to shul once a year that even if you come to shul once a year hashem still loves you and still has that relationship with you and yeah. again my content was modani on purpose because it's something that even someone with very minimum background oh, should have a connection point wow i didn't pick up on that that's that's brilliant and so i thought it's it's at least so for me that's that's that was okay but i didn't feel like i really challenged anybody i didn't feel like i really pushed anybody to and so i mean the story happened this summer so it was pretty fresh wasn't like a, a super old story and i had not told anybody about it and i decided to call my mom and ask her i know she's gonna be here even for yantif so I, I wanted to for sure like she's gonna be sitting in the crowd as i'm telling the story yeah I was going to ask you, how did you ask and, and from whom did you ask permission to share it? So because my mom was the main actor in the story, again, I don't think I gave any real details about what happened 12 years ago. It's yeah, just it that, wasn't super personal, but wasn't. Yeah, I, and so I feel like I needed to ask my mother-in-law for permission that she and my mom didn't get along. I, I felt that it was enough of a common story. Mm -hmm. that, that two mother-in-laws making a wedding had had issues with each other yeah um, i don't think that's it's not so surprising unfortunately um, unfortunately but the I, I felt that for sharing that my mom made a conscious decision to reach out to my mother-in-law and try to make amends that's again that's a that's a private matter that that takes a certain amount of bravery a certain amount of confidence a certain amount of uh, and again we normally don't overly praise people in front of them a and b again like i felt i felt that it was only respectful to my mom make sure she was okay with me sharing it before i did sure how did she feel about you sharing it, it a the fact that you were sharing it and b the fact that she was literally sitting there in the audience yeah so so the, the thing about my mom is that she is one of the most spiritual people naturally that i know again she and i joke all the time she loves loves the the storytellers and the fluffy fluffy people who i'm not gonna say by name but people who are who are wonderful, wonderful in terms of their connecting people to Yiddishkeit mm -hmm. with basically zero content or mm -hmm. a little bit, a little bit of a sprinkling of content, yeah. but uh, but it's it's overwhelmingly inspiration that so. very often I find to be problematic inspiration, frankly. <laughs> like like many of the stories, I'm like, well, that story is. Uh, I would take a different lesson from that story if we're being honest. And so I, she and I joke all the time that I am, uh, I'm, I'm much more Litvish in my. Yeah, I was going to say that Litvish versus Hasidic. In my, in my, um, in my learning and, and what, what inspires me. <laughs> At the same time, I like singing, right? So I have, I have a Shalvim side to me. I am a Shalvim guy after all, but. Yeah, you were rocking the house yesterday there in Musa. But still, but still. Uh, in terms of content the right the, the that boy is me stories the they're not they're not what gets me going mm -hmm. um, but my mom at first wasn't sure if i should share it um, and 
it wasn't like a, a long pause, but but she called me back later when I she said, Let me think about it. And then later that night she called me back and she said, Ari, if that story you think will help one or two people maybe try to make a little bit more peace in the world, then I want that slus. Oh. So like and that's how my mom thinks. Like she is mm-hmm. like a very spiritual person. Like yeah. I would not I would I wouldn't think that way. Yeah. That's 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 she's she's a different she's a different level on these types of things. I've learned tremendously from her, um, even though I don't think I come anywhere near her in terms of that intuition of the greater spiritual impact of things that she she intuits. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, so you seemed, from my perspective, very emotional when you were talking about it, but you told me also that you didn't feel particularly vulnerable or perhaps self-conscious about revealing it. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so the truth is, is that um, even in my life, even in my life, uh, there are people and situations that I wish were better, but they're not really with me. Um, they're just with people around me. And so I think the heaviness or the emotionalness that you were sensing or probably my emotions around a lot of these situations that I am dealing with but I don't feel vulnerable because it's not, thank thank God, I don't feel like I have people in my life that I have cut out for these types of reasons. Uh, so you were a degree I, removed from it. Yeah, so I'm a degree removed. So it's it's a still emotional because involved in a lot of situations that pain me greatly, uh, but thank God right now, I don't feel like I have any, any situations that are... Um, have that distance and have that dysfunction that I mentioned. Got it. Okay. So, so this is try to figure out how to phrase this. So from my perspective, I felt more connected to you as a leader, knowing that you have firsthand experience or maybe, you know, second degree experience in regards to your message that you were trying to impress upon people that they should forgive others. Do you feel that it's important to lead from the trenches and and past experiences as opposed to the leaders who they might be more concerned about the image that they have of their position or the role that they feel they have to upkeep and don't want anyone to know anything less than savory about them or their family or their past. A hundred percent. So, so again, it happens to be, this is an area that I thank God I'm not struggling with, but as a fundamental perspective, this is actually a conversation that Shira and I have had many, many times. Shira grew up in a place where it's probably because the rabbi is that amazing, but the rabbi was put up on a pedestal and was kind of, and this is a conversation that you can have about the Avos, right? About different, different, how, how do you perceive the actions of the Avos? Are they fallible? Are they human? Are they malachim? Are they, are they kind of human malachim? If they're human malachim, then they're not strivable. They're not people that we can strive to be like. Art scroll versus making of a goggle. Say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I am much more of the of of the people, for the people. My brother has a lot to say about about the way that I dress. He thinks that I should always be wearing a suit, mm-hmm. and that I should always kind of dress a certain way. And I always felt that I'm 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 doing my best to connect to Hakadosh Baruch Hu and and what I wear to differentiate myself from the people in my shul. I think is not. The make or break. I, I don't feel that is a is a necessary element. Again, maybe I should be wearing 
Mechubedika closed for davening for that reason, but not because I'm the rabbi. And I feel very strongly that the, the rabbi can be both mentor and friend, which is something that a lot of people disagree with me about. But I feel very strongly that I can be friends with my Balabatim and I can also push my Balabatim. And that I don't know that that's, and, and maybe that it also speaks to the struggle that I have about the embrace versus the pushing. But I feel like I'll take the challenge with the benefits of being both friends and mentor any day, any day. So, yeah. And I think that sharing your own struggles, I feel about this about parenting a lot. I feel that parenting is a really challenging, beautiful avoda that we all jump into with two feet and then realize that we have no idea what we're doing. And I feel very strongly that you you want to, again, communicate that you're thoughtful and yet you're always trying to learn how to be a better parent and, and that you fail all the time. And that's okay. I think Yes, I would say just yes to your question, but I feel it very passionately in a lot of ways. Right, that we're all in this together, that we're leading from the middle and not Yeah, from... I'm, I said this in the past, but I'm inspired by the leadership of Yoshua versus the leadership of Moshe. Moshe was the Pnei Chama. He was, you couldn't even look at him, right? He was just so otherworldly when the Jews complained about water or food. Moshe's like, what the heck? Like, God just split the sea and took you out. Like, stop complaining. And for me, the fact that when Yeshua takes over, there's no more fetching, there's no more complaining, is a huge function of the way that Yeshua leads as one of the guys. He was not a a cut above everybody else. He was one of the people. And I, I personally view that as, and again, I don't know that it's the only way. I just know that it's the only way for me. Right. Like I appreciate that there has to be Moshe Rabbeinu. And there are certain leaders who I, I feel like uh, maybe it's appropriate for them to lead really, really from the front. It's not it's not for me. And so, Do you think it's an old generation versus new generation thing? Because, I mean, Yoshima and Moshe were they were pretty much the same generation. But I'm saying more like 21st century versus 20th, 19th, 18th century, kind of the Rav figure. You know, you wouldn't expect them to be sharing these types of things necessarily, but now it seems people need these types of disclosures and, and that, you know, we're all in this together. You know, I'm not perfect. Just trying to show you what works for me and what the Torah says about it. So it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know. Because I know people in the previous generation who were rabbis like I am, and I know people who were not. And I know people today who are rabbis that are more lead from the front and on a pedestal mm-hmm. and not from within. I think it's more common today. I certainly think that the unfortunate realities of rabbinic abuses of power have um, forced people like me to really look in the mirror and mm-hmm. say, well, it happened to these people. Uh, am I immune? I, I don't think I'm immune. I don't think that I'm Right, because I have the title rabbi, that I all of a sudden have a have a past that I, I couldn't do things that are inappropriate. And so for me personally, I feel very strongly that I never want to lead people on to the perspective that I am this perfect human being. I want to strive to be. I want to strive to be the best version of me that I can. 
but the humanity that comes from being honest at our own fallibility, I think is healthy. And yeah. So again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to besmirch anybody who feels differently. I think that, I think that there are certain people that are really that unbelievable and that we need those people. We need those people leading from the front. Yeah. Uh, I just know that's not me and that's, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not everybody can be touched by those people, and not everybody can be touched by the way that that we do it. Right. So. Look, you needed you needed you needed the tribe of Yehuda in the front, and you needed the tribe of Dan to be massive all souls that didn't quite quite make it. And so, right. You... right. Okay. Just a couple more quick questions. Well, like I said, loved how you challenged the Kihila at the end to make amends, which is last step of my method, which is you know give them something that they can put into practice right away even if it's small, which in your case, it wasn't. But can you share, did you get any feedback? Did it inspire anyone to do anything? I know it's only been a day or so, but. With stories of people who told me that they're going to, that they're going to do anything. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of really, a lot of people enjoyed the, the, the drasha. And there are a couple of people who I know are going through situations that completely fit into the theme of the drusha and i got one of two type of reactions one reaction was yeah your drush is really making me think really mm-hmm. think we have like i need to i need to have a conversation with, with some of my people to try and figure out if 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 i'm brave enough to try right? yeah I, I definitely got people thinking about the possibility of checking their armor yeah and then i got some defeatist responses to like like rabbi you spoke beautifully is really powerful you should know like i've tried and it doesn't work <laughs> and so again and i appreciate that and and again in some ways my goal was to try to preempt that with the right the, the imagery of the ocean because if you can really be that so there there is no there is no last wave right it's just it's just endless right this just has to be your entire right you just keep on going it's not like you don't give up just because it didn't work the first time the 10th time the 20th time that you stop you just you just keep on going and and the truth is is that from my perspective if people don't actually make amends but they make peace by continuing to forgive the people in their lives that have wronged them and Mm -hmm. they can even live there but it doesn't actually lead back to the relationship as once was i think that's a win too so but i have not yet had anybody tell me that uh that as a result of this anything particular has happened i'm still it's still still early so yeah yeah (laughs) okay so the way that you ended was very abrupt and I thought it was great because you made an impact and you didn't dilute your message with any unnecessary chit chat. You know, you went in, did the job, you know, walked out. Was that intentional or did you have this is great. So this is great. This is this is wonderful. This is so 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 thank thankfully I have Connecto, my wife, who is my, my greatest champion and also my greatest critic. And she is she's great. And she happens to be extremely talented in her own in her own in her own way, and she's a great public speaker too. Whenever she um, yeah. does, she doesn't do it so often, but when she does, she really uh, knocks it out of the park. Yeah, she hates my endings always. <laughs> my endings are often fairly abrupt. Um, 
What? To land the plane, you got to land the plane gracefully. Exactly, exactly. I often have fairly abrupt endings. I do not meander, right? So my endings will very, very rarely have like we're gonna yeah yeah like i don't know where i'm going and then like mashiach right because i don't do that i don't do that but there are times where i basically conclude but i didn't mean to and so i have two options one is to go back to my notes and try to go back to what i anticipated right my right my conclusion to be um, the the full the full kind of review of the sermon in a in an encapsulated format, and mm-hmm. sometimes I decide that it's fine where it is, and I'm gonna leave it where it was. And so this is an example of it wasn't supposed to be that abrupt, but it was that abrupt, and I felt oh, like I had done what I needed to do, and I wasn't gonna do it anything else. I wasn't right. gonna, have it, and so I just left it. it was and perfect. she told me that I was too abrupt. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was perfect for what it counts. <laughs> I'll let her know. Uh, okay. And, uh, okay. Uh, two questions came to me. I don't know if you have any more time, but there's two quick questions. You'll tell me. I have, at least, for another time. I have at least 10 more minutes. Okay. It shouldn't take that long. The question that I wanted to ask you is, how do you feel attention spans today affect uh, your delivery of drushes? Do you take that into consideration? Um, it's a good question. I feel like... I don't know. I don't think it doesn't it doesn't change the way that I give a drasha. I feel very strongly that if you are compelling, then you will hold people's attention. Now, that's not to say that I am every time I give a drasha, it doesn't doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But I I know that there are times where my drasha lands better. There are times where my drasha lands not as good. And then I try to go back and try to understand what did I do well? What did I not do well? Why did this work? Why didn't it work? And I don't know. People still read books. If it's a good book, right? I always say, you know, the, the average length of movies now is up to almost two and a half hours. Yeah. Which is, you know, it went up. It's only going up. Yeah. So, so again, and, and, most, and it's not even that. Like, like, like most things nowadays are, are Netflix shows that are like 10 episodes and people will just watch straight. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Where did you find 10 hours to do that? You know? Right. So, so you're watching. Again, if it's compelling, I feel like people right. get attention. Yeah, obviously, if 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 you start off with this week's parsha, so you're yeah. people not to pay attention. So you're you're so your thought is, you know, let me put the heavy lifting in terms of how compelling I can be, as opposed to people's attention spans are really short. Let me be as short as possible and try to make an impact within that short time span. Yeah. Again, so so. I don't speak that long. My dressers are not that long anyways. Yeah. It wasn't choice of that is not because attention spans are so short. It's that I think that you can you can do everything you need to do in 12 minutes. Right? Yeah. If you're if again, I don't think it's sheer clearly. I don't think it's it's meant to be right this long-winded idea. You're trying to you're trying to move people to do something with their spirituality. You're trying to get them to whether it's engage with something you're trying to get them to do something you're trying to encourage people to believe something it doesn't have to be a major thing it has but you're trying to get them to do something with the trash mm-hmm. and so whatever it is right there's no commercial that's 12 minutes long so you have a 12 minute commercial right so yeah. you're trying to get someone to do something in 12 minutes 
if you need more time than that, in my opinion, then you're doing something wrong. Uh, right. Or or that's not the the, the platform for it. You know, right. That, exactly. It has exactly. in a different format you know, for coffee yeah. or whatever it is. 100%. So that really kind of leads into the last question, the MS, the last question, which is, what do you, in your opinion, what is the purpose of a draw show? Is it so, to educate? Is it to inform? Is it to transform? Is it to connect? Is it to lead? Is it maybe it's all of the above? So what there's a lot. There's a lot of little pieces to it, right? So meaning, so if I think the main thing is to move people, but it has to be from and rooted in Torah. So like, I don't want a story to move you because for all you know, the story is moving you in the wrong direction, right? I want the thing that you're being moved to do to be generating and emanating from Torah. So that's why, again, if you have a single Makor that you're really developing and you're really trying to send the message of that source, then that is, right, the, that, that's going to be doing it for you, right? So in the case of this particular direction, so Moda'ani, right, is, is actually a corollary. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much smaller piece of this that I hope some people come away from, which is that when they say moda'ani, they will think about the fact that we start with the word moda and not ani, right? That we start with the word thank you and it's supposed to I, and that moda'ani is meant to be about thanking God for another beautiful day, and it's not always about us. And the Rabbah Munasech, no matter how bad life gets, right? Mm. We believe in God, God believes in us. That little piece of Torah, right, from the Nefesh Shimshon, from, from Shimshon Pinkus, as well as kind of uh, my insight from based on Horashi and, and just Eicha and my own little idea, but I think yeah. comes out of the Psukim, those two ideas, right, are, I hope, going to right move you and help you understand that God's always there. And I gave them an action point that's not so simple. arena, But there's a tangential piece here, too, that want want people to also, right, engage and appreciate the depth of Talmud Torah, the depth of Tefillah, the depth of Judaism. And I don't just want right, to tell stories. I don't just want it to be fluffy. Yeah. I want there to actually be content that you can sink your teeth into in the drasha. But it's not about learning, right? It's not, yeah. the drasha is not, right, a sheer. It's not sheer quality. It's not a time to be, right, going through the rave. It's, it's a time that the values of Talmud Torah are emanating outwards and they're trying to push us to do, believe, think, act, something. And that I think is the right, the goal of the Drasha. There also is, right, the the there's a community piece, right? So I find that that one of the things podcasts are interesting, it's similar to the Dafyomi, right? So you have all these people all over the Jewish world or all over the world who are all listening to or learning this, right? So in a community, there are very few times where you have everybody in the community, right, engaging in a thing. Mm -hmm. But the drasha, in some ways, is the right. It's the communal, right, right. right. It's it's something that everyone is experiencing together, and they can talk about it at their Shabbos tables or rip it apart right. at their Shabbos tables, right? Like it's, but it's something that 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 if done well is something that also can be a uniting force. And so if your messages and your values are constantly be loving people, right? As on a communal messaging point, right? There's also a goal there, uh, right? Want my community to be a more loving community. I want mm -hmm. my community to be a community that's, that is like that ocean and shoreline. 
right? And so it doesn't always work that the messaging is 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 meant for that. This is an example of something that actually works very nicely to try to create that that communal fabric as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's something to that. To the drusha is part of the right the vibe of the community, the 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 zeitgeist of the community, right? It's a part of it, right? What is what does the drusha look like? I think could could I don't want to put too much power into the drusha. I think it's very powerful, but I think also sometimes we put too much power into it. But I think it has that potential. And so again, it's the message emanating the values of Torah with some actual concrete Torah. And then also this more right interwoven communal experience. Mm-hmm. Wow. Great. That, that's exactly what I wanted to, uh, to hear. Thanks. You probably don't get asked that question too often. So it's, it's a question that really kind of makes you think like, well, you're trying to achieve over here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, you, with, with all things, right? So you have, I think, I think many rabbis think very deeply about these things and spend mm-hmm. a lot of time trying to perfect the trade. But it doesn't mean that every time you give a drusha, you hit on every For level, sure. right? Yeah. And so you're, you have your goals standard and you have your drushas that you're like, oh, wow, this, this one worked really well. And yeah. I'm very proud of this one. And then you're going to have a lot of bell uh, tips and breakouts and everything in between. And so right. you you have to you have to just kind of get back up. Again, one advantage I have right now being an associate rabbi as opposed to a full time rabbi is that I don't have to produce every single week, right? <laughs> so again, there's there's a little bit of pressure then that every time I do speak, I I knock it out of the park. But there's also less pressure in that. I don't have to speak every single week. So that, again, affords me the opportunity to be even more thoughtful about the things that I do say, um, that people who have to produce all the time, right? You're kind of running the rat race and it's harder to be particularly thoughtful and you're more inclined to just do what's easy. So nice. I do think that's a caveat, right? That An advantage yeah. that I appreciate yeah. having. Right. Well, you probably won't be associate rabbi forever, so. <laughs> yeah. When the time comes, I'll have to I'll have to deal with that. Right. Right. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so so much. That was uh, fantastic. That was really really good. Learn more about Rabbi Newman at toratemet.org. T o r a t e m e t dot org, or email Rabbi Newman. That's Rabbi N e u m a n at toratemet.org. And be sure to check out Rabbi Newman's podcast, The Characters You Do Not Know, on Apple or Spotify. And to learn more about the Magid Method, visit magidmethod.com. This has been Daniel Steinberg, and thanks for listening.